The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Learn how the American Council of the Blind developed accessibility discussions with major technology companies and a look at the Deafblind Equipment Distribution Program at the Federal Communications Commission. Welcome to ACB Reports for September 2013. The Deafblind Equipment Distribution Program was created by the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act and falls under the oversight of the Federal Communications Commission. Jerry Barrier is the manager of this program for the states of Rhode Island and Massachusetts. During this year's annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind, he explained the availability and purpose of this nationwide program. I got started in this business of communications equipment when I worked for Verizon. And my last job with them was in their Center for Customers with Disabilities in Marlboro, Massachusetts. And I remember I was on the phone with a gentleman, an old guy, sounded like he was about 75 or 80. And I said to him, so do you feel like you have trouble hearing? Are you hard of hearing? And he said, no, I'm not hard of hearing. And I heard this very strident female voice in the background say, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> so let me give you a little background. This is part of the uh, 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, which we know as CVAA. And one of the things that was derived from that act was the concept that individuals who are deafblind face significant barriers in accessing communications and video. So the FCC, or the act I should say, mandated that the Federal Communications Commission establish a national deafblind equipment distribution program, which was known as the NDBEDP, they authorized the spending during a two to three year pilot program of $10 million per year to provide equipment and training for individuals who are deaf blind. We came up with a marketing term for this program, which I think is much easier to remember and easier to say. It is I Can Connect. Our website is iCanConnect.org. So if you're ever looking for any of the information that I'm covering here today, you can find everything I'm saying here on iCanConnect.org. This program uh, is a reimbursement program, which I think is a good thing. Uh, what that means is that the entities who are running the program, there's one entity that's been chosen in each state, they don't get a cent until they've distributed equipment to deafblind people. And for each um, amount of money for which they've distributed equipment to people, they can then be reimbursed a certain amount for administrative costs and a certain amount for the equipment and also for the training that goes along with it. But no matter what else they do that's good, if they don't provide equipment to people and training to people, they don't get reimbursed for anything. They allocated $500,000 annually for a national outreach program. And I should tell you that some of us were really hoping that the FCC would agree to a national equipment program. It's called national, but it really isn't. 
They wanted to see how different states would handle it. So rather than allowing one entity to take it for the whole country, while they did give us a, a national outreach program, the equipment program itself is handled independently by each state. $500,000 per year has been allocated, and the contract was won by Perkins School for the Blind and the Helen Keller National Center, which have been in partnership for this program. That 500000 per year goes into national outreach. That's reaching out to national uh, news organizations, uh, partnering with national advocacy groups such as the American Council of the Blind, American Foundation for the Blind, National Federation of the Blind, uh, National Association of Deaf, Blind, and so on. Along with that, then each state is allocated a certain amount of money based on the state's population. Not disability population, but their general population. So for example, I happen to know Massachusetts, since I'm directly involved in that part of it, we got uh, $193,000 per year. We just started our second fiscal year, by the way, and the, the funding has been reallocated for this year. The way the funding is set up, if you don't use it by the end of the year, it's gone and a new year begins. So you can't carry it over and then buy a lot of equipment next year because you didn't buy any this past year. Ohio, being a larger state than Massachusetts, got an allocation of somewhere in the neighborhood of 280000 per year. Don't quote me on that, but it's in that range, and you can find it on iCanConnect.org. And by the way, I've been involved right from the very beginning of this program when they conceptualized how they were going to handle it. One of the first things that I did, I was hired by Perkins as a consultant to start with to do this. I called rehab agencies and advocacy groups in every state, did it all with my iPhone, by the way, because I didn't have my own desk at the time. And uh, I talked with agencies and tried to encourage someone to step up to the plate and apply to be the handling entity for that state. Perkins and Helen Keller decided in any state where there is no other applicant, we will apply for it. But in any state where there is someone else who wants to handle it, we will not compete against them. It ended up that we got 12 of the states. So we are the entities in West Virginia, Massachusetts, Texas, Rhode Island, Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico. I wanted to uh, volunteer to go to the Virgin Islands, but they haven't let me yet. Montana, they'll probably send me there in the winter. Uh -huh. <laughs> Arizona, Arkansas, New Mexico, Maryland, and I believe that's the 12. But uh, all the other states, um, somebody has agreed to do it, at least in most of those states. What's involved in the program? Well, <clears throat> let me tell you what Perkins and Helen Keller have done. Although we're running it in 12 states, we're involved in over 30 states in one way or another. We assist with the state's outreach programs as well as being involved in national outreach. We have set up a database. Uh, the agency we use for our database is Keystone from Raleigh, North Carolina, which is the same agency that does databases for about 30 of the Braille and Talking Book libraries around the country. So they know how to make their website and their other uh, applications accessible. They work well with JAWS and Window Eyes and other screen readers, and they've been wonderful to work with. So we have a database that people can purchase from us on a subscription basis. 
We also provide equipment procurement. Our sales division will purchase the equipment that is ordered by states around the country and have it shipped to them or to the consumers. In some states, we also do training and we assess people's skills and needs in some of the states. Our definition of deafblindness is a very broad definition. It's a functional definition that is based on the Helen Keller National Act definition of deafblindness. And it basically says if either you have a progressive disorder, such as Usher's syndrome, which affects your eyesight and your hearing, or if you have significant difficulty in your daily life due to a combination of vision and hearing loss, then you could potentially be categorized as deafblind. We do not require audiograms or eye reports. We simply require that a professional who has knowledge of the individual is willing to attest upon penalty of perjury if they're incorrect on that or inappropriately attest. They have to attest that that person has a dual disability that has a major impact on their life. So if the person meets that requirement, we would then uh, have them fill out an application. If they meet our, all of our eligibility requirements, we would assess their skills. We actually send someone out to their house. I'm the one that does it in Massachusetts, and we have people in the other states. We go to their house. We find out a little bit about them ahead of time. We want to know, are you a Braille reader? Do you use American Sign Language? Do you already use technology? That sort of thing. That helps us to know what bag of equipment to take with us. Sometimes I'll go with three braille displays and a note taker or two. Other times I'll go with an iPad and an iPhone and maybe a demo of Zoom text, depending on what I know about that person. So we sit down for a couple of hours with them and assess what do they have now, what is it that they want to do, and what equipment might we be able to offer them that would meet their needs. Once that's done, we order the equipment, we take it to the person, we set it up, and then we provide them training on it. And we even do some tech support. That's more difficult than we thought it was going to be at the beginning. It's hard to find trainers who know all of the Braille note-taker devices, and it's hard to find trainers with a lot of the skills that we need. We can provide any combination of equipment that will enhance a person's access to the Internet, the cellular network, or the landline telephone network. Examples might be an iPod or an iPad or an iPhone and a Braille display. Maybe an iPad and a Braille note-taker, such as the Apex or the BrailleSense U2 or one of the other ones. It might be simply an iPad. The iPad has been our most popular device in this program because a lot of folks are low vision but still have some good usable vision. So we can provide them with an iPad and teach them how to use Zoom on it and the other accessibility features that are built right into it, and maybe that's all they need. Whatever we provide, though, has to be related to distance communications, meaning some sort of electronic communications, not meaning just across the room, but communicating through the Internet and so on. Some things that this program does not cover we cannot pay for internet service, phone service, cellular service, or any other kind of service. The funding is just not large enough to handle that sort of thing. That may change someday in the future, 
But while $10 million sounds like a lot of money annually, when you spread it out across the country and you include the cost of training and paying for interpreters and that sort of thing, that money doesn't go as far as one might think it would initially. The FCC has encouraged us to partner with other advocacy groups and other agencies in this program. So in many situations, we hire consultants to do training for us. They have encouraged us to hire people with disabilities when we can. So we have some blind folks, because who knows blind technology better than blind folks? Uh, we also have some folks who are deafblind that are trainers for us around the country. We can pay for drivers. We can pay for sign language interpreters. When I say drivers, I mean for the people doing the training. The program is not authorized to pay to bring deafblind people to a center. We can pay to bring trainers to the individual, and we pay whatever the costs are of getting that person there and facilitating the communications. Who is eligible? The person has to be considered deafblind. They have to have income that is less than 400% of the national poverty rate. Or if they're on one of many federal programs such as SSI, they're automatically income eligible. They also have to have some prerequisite skills. We will not provide you with a Braille display if you don't already know how to read Braille. We will not provide you with a uh, computer if you can't type. And the person has to have the ability to learn to use the technology that we've provided for them. Again, if you have questions, you can go on iCanConnect.org, and the great majority of your questions will probably be answered right there. And I thank you all for listening to me. Jerry Barrier was recorded at the annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind in Columbus, Ohio, in July of this year. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Shortly after the conclusion of the 52nd Annual Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind, Eric Bridges, who had been the organization's Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the past six years, left the employment of ACB to embark on a private career. As one of his final duties for the organization, he explained how ACB developed accessibility discussions with several major technology companies. I bring to you all this morning what I consider to be good news. I am an everyday user of technology. I do not profess to be um, a power user of technology. But one of the things that has happened through the course of my six years with ACB is that a larger percentage of issues that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in some way pertain to technology. Whether it's dealing with employment, transportation, healthcare, education, technology touches all of these areas of our life. You know, in 2007, when I came aboard, there was this loosely knit coalition that had just sort of formed called the Coalition of Organizations for Accessible Technology, COAT. And they had this draft piece of legislation that, you know, really sought to change the world from a technology perspective for individuals with disabilities. And that little discussion draft got introduced and all this stuff, and you all know the gory details because ACB was one of the leaders in getting it enacted. And uh, that's something that already has 
I believe, brought a greater level of accessibility to our lives. But in the next decade to come, it is going to do some tremendous things. It would only be partially successful if we were just to rely upon the law and the regulations that are currently being implemented at the FCC. One of the interesting things that I learned through the process of negotiating the law is that there's a lot of companies, their knee-jerk reaction was, no, we don't want to do that. It's going to cost us money. Or, do you really need that? Do you really want to be able to use that? And I'm thinking, yes, you use it. Why wouldn't I? You're not that cool. So the overarching concept of, okay, we've negotiated this really outstanding law. And we're very proud that we've been able to do that, and I'm certainly proud that I played a role in its passage. And while we have to continue to monitor the implementation of it, right, to make sure that the government adheres to the letter of the law, but also to the spirit of the law, there's a lot more work that needs to be done from an advocacy perspective and outreach. So right after the president signed the bill into law, we decided to undertake a strategy of doing outreach to companies that seemed to be, if not supportive, they were at least neutral to the concept of collaborating with a major national membership organization of the blind, like ACB, to begin to engage them in dialogue about the sorts of products that we wanted to gain access to, what was out there that was accessible at the time, and what wasn't that really needed to be made accessible. That started in 2010, and it started with a trip to Sprint, who's one of our sponsors at this convention and, and has been. Through the years, through a couple of resolutions, we got fairly cross with Sprint. But soon after the passage, myself and the chair of the Information Access Committee at the time, Pratik Patel, took a day trip to Kansas City to meet with their executives, to speak with them about the law and to try and find a way to have a better relationship with them as a company. Because so many of our members, and blind people in general, are Sprint customers. And they had been left in the wilderness, so to speak, uh, with the lack of any sort of accessible phones and really no quality customer service. And so we began this dialogue. And what we learned was that they were actually pretty interested in what it was we had to say, uh, the fact that we weren't coming there with a stick, but rather with a slightly different tone than we had in the past. And what we've gotten has been something very positive. They have their own call center now for customers with disabilities, staffed by people with disabilities, which is really cool. They have had us out since to talk a lot about how to have better corporate responsibility in terms of hiring individuals with disabilities, which is really a neat thing, and, and we've gotten to have a very good relationship with them. But that's not the only story. Google is you know, one of the lead sponsors at this convention. This is their third year. We reached out to them a couple of years ago to engage in sort of a similar dialogue. Google has a lot of products. Google is changing the world in a lot of ways, changing through their products how we access information, how we communicate, all these things. What they're doing is so dynamic and it cuts across the life continuum that we felt it was absolute paramount import for us to reach out to talk with them about engaging in a collaborative effort. 
to let them know what we wanted and to try and have them understand that where they were wasn't really where we wanted them to be with many of their products, but we were willing to help them get there. What has happened is that they view us as a trusted partner. We introduced a concept of a, an accessibility summit, and after about a year and a half of talking about it and moving through various stages of our relationship, they said, you know what, we're going to do this accessibility summit, but we're just going to have uh, the blind community because this is the first time we've ever done this. And so September of last year, myself and Brian Charlson, who's now the chair of ACB's Information Access Committee, and Pratik Patel went to Google for a day-long meeting all of the senior product managers were in attendance for their entire app suite. The day was kicked off by a senior member of leadership, Alan Eustace, who's senior vice president for knowledge. He oversees the search engine and is the executive sponsor for accessibility. Knowledge, isn't that the coolest job title? Yeah. <laughs> knowledge is pretty cool. He kicked off the meeting and thanked ACB and said that he knew that Google isn't where it needs to be but that with our assistance, they expect to get there. And so all these product managers went through product reviews of stuff like calendar, contacts, docs, and uh, really what they wanted to do was to hear from us. So they spoke for half the time, and then we spoke for half the time. The nice thing is that the accessibility team at Google was there, and they kicked off the morning but the product managers themselves knew enough about accessibility and had bought in enough to accessibility to be able to handle the questions that we had. They didn't defer to the accessibility team, which is a very good sign. We're viewed as a trusted partner there. We're viewed as a trusted partner, I believe, with Sprint. While we were out there, we made the most of Google's funding. We also visited Apple and Facebook <laughs> and took a red eye home. Apple is a very interesting company. They're fascinating, peculiar, and weird all at the same time. And they're positively wonderful for the accessibility of the products that they have included for the last, gosh, four or five years now. It's outstanding. But they operate in their own bubble. And it was initially a little difficult to find the right person there. But we believe we've found the right person. And that individual has recently been promoted to a position that has previously never been held within Apple, which is Worldwide Senior Product Manager for Accessibility, which is really a neat thing. That individual's name is Sarah Herlinger, and she was here last year. She uh, was gracious enough to come and do a couple of different trainings for individuals that were uh, new to the touchscreen world, as many of you know, that can be pretty intimidating when you're first getting started. And she helped to orient uh, well over 100 folks during one day of trainings. Apple doesn't sponsor anything. Apple doesn't attend many things. But to have her come last year and to meet with us regularly uh, when we're out in Silicon Valley, it means a lot to us. And she reaches out to myself and to uh, Brian Charlson with questions dealing with braille display issues, as well as rotor and other voiceover-related issues. So it's good. We have a partner there. We also met with Facebook. Facebook is a new 
young company. And when I say that, I mean everybody that works there is young. Our first meeting with them was in Washington, D.C., and it was a little prickly. And some of that had to do with the other blindness organization that had just been in there that was threatening to file a lawsuit against them. So that made it easy for us to come in and attempt to be a little bit more reasonable. They had not had a quality assurance process for any of the stuff that they were putting up on their website. And this has nothing to do with accessibility, folks. This has everything to do with everything that they were putting up on their website. They just needed to get it out, right? Find this new thing, get it out. Throw a beer at somebody, poke somebody, all of those goofy things. Let's just get it out there and see if people like it. Obviously, they didn't really have a focus on accessibility. So when we began to engage them with this, they really took a step back and began to reevaluate how they were structured as a company. And as they started to build sort of a quality assurance process to better control the quality of the product that was going up on Facebook.com or the mobile site or the app, they began to reach out to us to say, okay, we want to get an accessibility person. Who should we look at? And we want this person to do this, 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 and this. And we're going, well, that's like two or three jobs. You want one person to do all these? Yeah, we're Facebook. We find these people. I was like, okay, well, yeah. The neat thing and the underlying theme here is that they came to us, and they continue to come to us. I know, because I am on Facebook, that the experience is not ideal most of the time. The thing is, it's not a blindness thing. It's an everybody thing. They're constantly changing. They have this 1% credo, right? It's only ever 1% done, which means it's constantly in a state of flux. So how do we work with them to ensure that the other 99% of the time that stuff is changing on their website be changed with accessibility at its core? And that's something that they're identifying. They now have an accessibility team of, I want to say, roughly 8 or 10 folks. They've contracted out some other work which is a very long way from a couple years ago when they just said, well, we got it. Don't worry about it. So in closing, our profile has been raised with these companies, with companies like Microsoft. Brian Charlson and I visited Microsoft and met with senior executives from five different divisions earlier this year to talk with them about accessibility challenges that blind people are having with their products. Frankly, some of the resentment that has built up over the years from many in the blind community towards Microsoft and how they have said one thing and, and done another in some instances. They're working hard to change that perception and they're working hard to add accessibility as part of the overall corporate accountability of what their leadership is measured against on an annual basis. A lot of neat stuff is going on, folks. And more and more companies are coming to us as the CVAA implementation deadlines loom for wireless devices. They're coming to us wanting us to assist them in testing products. I feel like we're doing it the right way. I think letting them know the shortcomings of their products, letting them know that we don't find this to be acceptable, but also wanting to help and wanting to provide good feedback and wanting to pat them on the back when they do something good. It's key in order to be recognized as a partner, as a collaborator, and as, frankly, an organization that can be there to provide substantive feedback. 
Comcast is going to be here tomorrow. That's a whole new example of the work that we're doing. The cable TV environment's going to be pretty cool moving into the next few years. Comcast has some neat stuff that they're working on that we've been able to take a look at. And uh, I'm excited for the future of accessibility. That was Eric Bridges, now the former Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. This producer and the entire organization wish him well in his new venture. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.